so now it's a matter of us pulling it all together to like the whole joint and, and putting on what I think will be a brilliant showcase for the sport. Yeah, we'll be honest with ourselves next week, as usual, and say, OK, it's a stonking result, but what could we have done better? Finding that passion for racing again. You know, stop looking at it like my job and, and go back to just doing it because I love racing cars and I love competing and that's really what's changed this year. Hi everyone, welcome to Inside Supercars. Shane Van Gisbergen from the Red Bull Holden Racing Team here. Welcome to Inside Supercars. Tony Whitlock, Craig Ravel, and it's post the release of the 2020 schedule. Much uh, vaunted and uh, long anticipated. Lots of interesting things in the uh, new event schedule, isn't there, Craig? Yes, well, we, we did talk a little bit about it last week on the show, but uh, I guess... For yourself, Tony, 200-kilometre races during the Super Sprints right throughout the season. So, uh, as you jokingly say, you don't get out of bed for less than 200 kilometres. I actually was watching today the RPM show with uh, Garth Sander and Michael Caruso, who both were vehemently, you know, sort of saying that, the, you know, these the 120, the shorter races are much better. Da, da, da. And I thought, yeah, well, it might be better for you when you're driving it. For a large part, though, you and I both know that the shorter races have not been very interesting, really. It's all right for drivers. They're sitting in there having fun, but for us sitting out watching, it's really not that good. Anyway, just a couple of the little things I picked out the standardised format, so that we'll now have 200Ks on both days, 14 events next year, not the 16 that were running last year, or so that um, it was deemed that uh, budget-wise that people wanted only 14 events. So that means the uh, end of both Queensland Raceway and Phillip Island, which a lot of people are pretty unhappy about, but, you know, such is the way that everyone's never pleased. Lots of interesting little details in other things. I think find it fascinating, the AGP, now they're going to standardise four 100k races. It's always been very strange when you've got differing points for different length races. I mean, obviously sad enough that uh, you do 500k somewhere and you can get the same points as if you do 1,000. So very strange. But um, part of the uh, change, of course, was the Sandown, the change from being a 500k race uh, in September, as it was uh, ended this year. And next year, of course, it's uh, Tail and Bend that gets the 500Ks and that 400, twin 200k races for Sandown in November. So that was interesting. Of course, this year we uh, have already seen the uh, Pukekohe event uh, now running in in this uh, September date, in a couple of weeks' time. Next year, of course, it's uh, swapped back to uh, Anzac Day, which I thought was pretty good some years ago. You would not have been to one of those, would you? No, but I think what the team did over the course of the, the two or three years it was on, I think it was two years it was on there, was, you know, really uh, some nice tribute liveries, and uh, it seemed like it was the right time for the yeah. uh, series. Some of the other things that are interesting in the uh, schedule, the release of the calendar, it uh, the change of tyres, that's one of the things that's happening. There'll be um, greater variety, I believe, that we'll be seeing more of the mix of hot and, and of rather soft and hard. Um, the fact that there's going to be a, a, a new venue for the pre-season test, and it really does seem that it's... Uh, an event to uh, for the teams to, to really try out tail and bend. So that's happening two days before the kickoff at the Adelaide uh, 500. 
Um, interesting because uh, Townsville's now moved, and it's for the first time in its ten or so years. It's the first time. It's before Darwin, not afterwards. That's an, an interesting change, I would think, uh, Craig. Yeah, uh, not quite sure. Perhaps they're trying to line up school holidays, ensuring that they're uh, in school holiday periods for the majority of the fans who want to travel. Yeah. Um, one of the benefits is, I think, for next year that a lot of people have made mention, particularly the teams, is this idea of the uh, 500 being uh, going back to a warm-up for Bathurst. This year, of course, is an exception where uh, we're straight into the, the 1,000 Ks. Um, I think a lot of people will be very pleased to see the 500. And Taylor Bend obviously has a venue that is well-suited to an endurance race. So those are the things that, uh, some of the things that came out of the release of the calendar. Um, fascinating. I mean, Sydney Motorsport Park, of course, will be back next year with its uh, nighttime racing, along with Barbagello, which will be moved to that event uh, this Saturday night. Gold Coast, of course, being a night race. Um, there's lots to talk about them trying like this at Townsville as well, but, you know, that's uh, for the future maybe... Uh, Queensland Government have come on board for support for another five years for uh, Townsville. I think it was for Townsville, is that correct? Or was it for, for yep. the Gold Coast? Uh, no, that is quite both sure. events uh, on board for that time. Both events, was it? Right. Well, that's terrific because... Uh, yeah, just also they're working on new financial incentives for the uh, Enduro Cup as well. So, um, oh, yes, yes, the return of passing points. Yes, yeah, so that's going to uh, play (laughs) an interesting role in the endurance races in the future as well. Yes, we all know drivers uh, always enjoy those little uh, incentives they get, and that uh, certainly uh, the return of passing points will be uh, interesting with those who gain the most places over the Enduro Cup uh, winning that $15,000. Prize money, so that'll be an interesting one. Um, those are those are sort of the uh, gist of the things around the calendar. There's lot, lots more supercar news. I mean, the interesting thing was to see that James Courtney came out just recently and, and announced that he is leaving uh, Walkinshaws after nine years. Um, whether he jumped or whether he is pushed, that's uh, uh, speculation everywhere, but. As part of that, of course, is the news about um, Chas Mostert and uh, him joining. That's the popular belief that he'll be joining uh, Walkinshaws to uh, run one of their Commodores. It's hard to believe that you'd actually jump out of a Mustang to go into one of them, but anyway, so be it. And it was interesting to see about Will Brown. Did you see those news that, uh, well, not news as such, a speculation that he would be joining Walkinshaws? He's come out and said, no, no, that's not the case. He, of course, had one of those weekends that uh, he's done a number of times this year in TCR, driving the uh, one of the Hyundais, had a near-perfect weekend with pole positions and lap records and winning races by record amounts in TCR and all those sorts of things, extended his points uh, a lead to 116 points. I mean, he really is a dominant force in those cars. Um, and you can see many reasons why someone would want to put him into a supercar in the main game, but he's saying that he'll only do it, you know, if the time is right. So 
it's a fascinating development. He's definitely but a, you had a young uh, man who enjoys his motor racing. He's, he's a great guy to speak to. Uh, as I said, full of confidence, and he's got that you know steely determination that he wants to be in the supercars main game. Now, Tom Howard's story is an interesting one. A um, lot of rumours floating about that second seat. Will it Scott Pye stay? Uh, some people have uh, said that they believe. Todd Hazelwood is moving across there. There's all sorts of speculation going on. It's probably um, there's been as much speculation going on at Walkershaw Andretti United as there has been at Team 18 and their second car. So um, yeah, Tom Howard with that definitive story that it's not going to be Will Brownseed is quite interesting, and it uh, puts a line through. Uh, that speculation, remembering that he is the co-driver with Anton Di Pasquale at Erebus for this year's Pertec Enduro Cup. It, uh, yeah, certainly seems that the silly season is uh, you know, starting to warm up a bit and it'll probably get a lot hotter before uh, things all pan out for next year. But you had an interesting time at uh, Tail and Bend. You had a good time chatting with Paul Glover, the uh, Supercars Media Tyro, who... Um, gave you an insight into uh, his job and his business. Yes, in the interview after the break, you'll hear how he, uh, well, you'll hear about how he got to supercars and a few of the more interesting jobs that he's had along the way. And then he talks about his philosophy of being a media manager and how he balances up the the role as uh, it has a couple of different facets to it, which you'll find out more throughout the course of the discussion. So after the break, it's Paul Glover of Supercars Media. Each week, join the Inside Motorsport team as they look at all the news from across Australia and around the world. Still a bit in shock. Uh, <laughs> thanks, thanks, everyone. Dissecting the sport with interviews, news and opinion. Got to put money back into the sport at the lower levels to develop the kids and bring them up. You can't rely upon good luck for Daniel Ricciardo's old man to have found a few mates to tip some money in and send him overseas. There actually needs to be a structure. Inside Motorsport broadcast on community radio and online at sportradio.com.au. The views expressed on Inside Supercars, including the panellists and guests, do not reflect the views of the network, Thunder Media or Sport Radio. Any publication or rebroadcast of the show without the expressed written permission of Thunder Media is strictly prohibited. Dick Johnson from DJR Team Fenske. And you're on Inside Supercars. Paul Glover's the media manager for Supercars. Three years in the role, Paul. How have you enjoyed motorsport and this Supercars experience? It's been fantastic. It's been a great ride. Um, it's something that I never thought I'd end up in. Uh, working as a journo and stuff like that, you never really think you'll end up working for a sport that you don't really follow as a kid. But I love it. You know, big fan, I guess, now. And, yeah, enjoying every day. So... You were born and raised in the Gong, so how do you get from, you know, being in Wollongong, Steeler Country, Laura Hawks, and that sort of uh, core sporting interest to uh, make your way through the path? Um, I started out at uni, I was studying journalism, um, and my first job I had to, as part of my degree, do work experience, and I was that uni kid who still worked at Macca's at the time, so my parents joked that I was the oldest Macca's worker in Australia. I think I was like 21, 22. I was, don't like people knowing that, but I'll put it on the podcast. Um, but I was at Macca's, and I was, you know, looking for, you know, I decided media was what I wanted to do. Always grew up, you know, writing fake match reports for my 
inline hockey team when I was 11 years old and, you know, writing newspaper articles for the school newsletter and stuff and just loved, you know, kind of reporting on sports. So I knew that's what I actually wanted to get into. So I started studying sports journalism through Southern Cross Uni and part of that degree I had to do work experience at a media company. Um, in Wollongong there's not too many outside of Wind News, obviously, a few radio stations, Illawarra Mercury, and I wasn't really sure which path I wanted to go down. So it was actually a Christian radio station, which was the first to come back to me, and it was a shed out the back of a church um, that said, you know, if you can come and join our newsroom, we've got a pretty experienced ex-ABC journo here, happy to help you out. So that was where I started, um, which a bit interesting. Um, when you're you know, still 21, 22 years old, you're still partying with the boys, and you rock up to a church the next morning pretty dusty to read the news. It's um, probably not the smartest thing you'll ever do in work experience, but no, nah, I, you know, kind of started writing sports news, and from there, the commercial radio station in Wollongong picked me up, um, I-98, and that's where it all began. So, working through radio and in the newsroom, but that moved you into the big smoke, into Sydney? Yeah, so I was working at I-98 and um, their sister station, C91.3 in Campbelltown, so driving an hour at three in the morning up to read the sport for them. I was just taking every casual shift I could, you know, everyone knew at the time working in media you had to take what you could to get a full-time gig and that was the way it was back then and um so I was working seven days a week essentially getting up at whatever time I had to and working whatever hours I had to and decided you know I wanted to try a bigger challenge um than the the regional station so a job popped up at 2GB and I was lucky enough to get it so I went up and worked with Hadley and uh, Mark Levy who's now Macquarie Sports Radio he was you know my I was with him in sport. We shared the sport reading, so I was doing Monday night footy and weekends, continuous call team. and um, It was a short gig because I then got pulled out of that job win in Wollongong in TV, even though I thought I had a head for radio, needed a sports guy on TV. and um, I was good mates with the news director at the time, and he, um, he just said, you know, if you're interested, I'm desperate. Um, and threw what I thought was good money <laughs> in journo days. Um, yeah, he threw that back, and... You know, said it was an opportunity. It was moving home at the time. I was, you know, missing the family, commuting to Sydney all the time. So, and TV was always where I wanted to end up anyway. Sports reporting in TV was always what I wanted to do. So, um, took the opportunity to go to Wynn's flagship uh, back in Wollongong, doing sport and general news. And that's where it all kind of kicked off. And, you know, in terms of motorsport, I remember some of my first stories were talking about Damien White um, in the Utes and stuff like that. So, I always knew about it, and Bathurst being a wind station, I always you know, saw the, the pre-Bathurst hype and what was going on. So it was always something that was ticking over in the background that I enjoyed and I liked, and I was like, wow, they do this well. Um, and so, yeah, that was, I guess, my first foray into supercars and you know what happens on a track. Was this pre or post the Rugby League um, Super League split? Uh, this was definitely post. So I'm, I look old, but I'm not that old. Um, <laughs> So this was around oh, 2007 or 8. Um, so, yeah, so I was working at Win. I think I started in Radio 2005, something like that, um, and then came back to, yeah, 2008, 2009, 2010 is when I was in the 2GB win phase. Um, in 2010, I was there for the Dragons winning the grand final. So I was definitely in TV at that point. How did you then um, decide to make the jump from journalism to the public relations role so money it's the easiest thing you can say it's honest um and i don't mind saying it you know as a journalist the wage was literally less than half what i got offered for a communications job 
And at the time, I'd been a journalist for five, six, seven years, and Wynn had the relationship with Nine. And it was kind of a natural progression to go from that Wynn role to a metro kind of city like a Brisbane or a um, or a Sydney, uh, work for Channel 9. And that opportunity was there. It was sitting in front of me. Um, and then the comms job came up, and the wage was literally more than double. And the comms job, at the time, I'd been with... Um, my girlfriend at the time who was also a journalist so we did not have a great income between us and we kind of sat down and said what we wanted in life and you know we we wanted to get married and you know have a nice big honeymoon we wanted to start getting into the property market because property was booming so I made a very honest decision that as much as I loved journalism and I, I loved working in tv and radio I loved everything about what I was doing it was just one of those ones where I said you know this money is sitting in front of me and it's a different path and you know being a sports media manager and stuff like that was always something that I knew of and I thought you know long term was something I'd progress into and so this comms job popped up in Wollongong with a huge multi um well one of Australia's biggest non-for-profit aged care providers and yeah it was just an opportunity financially to take care of myself and Mia and I, I took it um with absolutely no idea how different it would be to journalism. Can you Give us an idea of just what those differences are because I don't think people appreciate that and when people start hearing that um, more and more reports are being done by PR companies and media companies, they probably don't appreciate the nuance that is between the two. Yeah, it's it. when I jumped into an aged care role, which is so government-based and so strategic and so everything that you do in that role every word you write in a media release, everything that you do, similar to, I guess, how a journal writes a story in a court report and has to make sure that they're not going to get sued. Um, you have to do the same thing on a media release, whereas working in radio and TV, you're basically putting out exactly what you saw on TV and things like that, and you, you're really just taking other people's work or an interview you took off a player at training about how they feel. and um, It's completely different having to manage the other side, and I, I completely underestimated it. I was young, I was working, and it was kind of frustrating, to be honest, because I thought I knew everything about how to be a media manager. A lot of journos say I could do that job, and they all you know, get frustrated at media managers who don't give them information that they require, and you know, it, it's always, there's always a very good reason for it. Um, contracts aren't signed. You know, even though everyone knows the truth, it's similar to what we get in supercars. We know where people are going six months before they sign a contract, but we can't talk about it. We can't announce it. You know, and journos always come to me saying, why aren't we doing this? Why aren't we announcing this? Um, and there's always a reason. And like any business in the world, if it's not a done deal, you can't do the work. Um, and so in media and comms, you know, you can write speculative reports when you're with the bigger papers and you've got that backing and you've got that audience. Um, but when you're managing it, on the other side, you have to understand who's, who's writing your paychecks. And as much as you want to help your friends who are journos and say, yeah, mate, that's, you know, this is exactly what the story is. You're right on the money. You, you have to, you know, and you have to be honest and you have to be fair and you have to manage that situation. And it's a lot of negotiating and a lot of it is, in journalism, you can literally walk in, hold a microphone in someone's face and walk out and you've got what you need. Um, in media, Yeah, hopefully. In media management, it's a lot more about relationships and long-term relationships because people have to trust you um as a journalist people don't trust you um they're always cautious but you know especially athletes um whereas when you're the person managing the relationship you really have to be that voice of reason and you know working in rugby and stuff like that everyone knew when contracts were signed elsewhere 
everyone knew when a wallaby was going overseas. It was always on the cards. But you have to manage that and you need to be able to... And those negotiating skills and that give and take that you don't need to have as a journalist, you really need to learn how to give an honest approach to, to handling, handling that and managing that. And it's, it's a skill of media management that, you know, Cole Hitchcock, who's our general manager of PR and comms, is brilliant at it. And he was a journo too. And it's something that if you're not honest and if you're not straight up and if you're not... Journos are smart. <laughs> um, and again, there's a lot of media managers who don't respect that. And if you don't respect that person who's calling you and who, you know, has a whisper or whatever... If you don't help them with their story, it's not going to help you in your job. As a journalist, you don't have to worry about that. You know? And I guess that's one thing you learn as a young media manager is if you don't know how to manage a relationship properly, you'll get nowhere. Yeah, and one of the interesting things that has been very slow to develop here is the understanding of backgrounding a journalist. And I, that comes back to the trust. Some people understand backgrounding and some people still think, anything I can say can be used against me because they just don't understand that a, a journalist needs information to be able to build a story. But if you just lie to them, they're not going to ever trust anything you say. Exactly. And that, that's, you know, and that's the thing is, like, I think a lot of young media managers who start out in sport um, and some that have been involved with government agencies and that, that their job is to really withhold information I think um, and that's what businesses tell you to do a lot but it doesn't get you anywhere um, because as I said journalists are smart like you you know they're not dumb people and they're cluey and you know and that's their job that's and if you don't respect where someone comes from no matter what job you have if you don't respect someone who's been in their job for 25 years and you know in this game in journalism someone's got contacts for 25 years well beyond your three years of media management um, if you don't respect that, if you don't, you know, work with that and understand that you and them have to have a working relationship for you to get paid um, and for you to be good at your job, you'll fail. And I'm someone who takes what I do very seriously and a lot of pride in what I do. And, yeah, I guess that's something that you pick up along the way. At first, you know, people come to you and they say, you know, what can you tell me about this situation? And when you're a kid, and I learn it from rugby... Um, you pretend you don't know anything. It's the easiest option, you, you, you know, and this may be the biggest secret in media management. Everyone knows, you know, but you sit there saying, what are you talking about? I've never heard that. Um, but it's not the way to operate. You know, you, you need to work with everyone properly. And legitimately, if I haven't heard something, I'll be honest and I'll say, I have no idea what you're talking about, but I'll look into it. And if you don't do that for someone, and when you do do that for someone, that's when you realise that you do gain that trust because you're working with them to help them do their job and you're working with your organisation to, I guess, you know, the information that you didn't know, they can help you with. And, yeah, that, that's that balance you need. You need to be able to work with two different parties, not just the person you work for. And media managers sometimes forget that journalists are as much a part of your job as your boss. You've mentioned rugby a couple of times, and uh, obviously you're in sports media management now. So when did the crossover come from? When you, we left the story, it was in healthcare. Yep. How did you end up? And I, I know your job at the Brumbies, but I don't know if that was your first sports yeah. job. Um, technically, it was my first sports media management role. Um, it's quite funny how I came about it. I was on my honeymoon. Um, so I'd worked in aged care. And in aged care, as I said, it's quite an intense environment at times. You know, you, like people die in aged care. 
Um, and but also there's a lot of money involved in developments and government agencies, and it, it can be a lot of stress in a lot of different departments. So if it's not what you want to do, and it's also a very nine to five job, um, which isn't me. <laughs> um, I don't know if I'm ADHD or what, but it, it just wasn't me. And sport was always where my heart was. So I was on my honeymoon, rather tipsy, and just scrolling through Seek one day. hadn't even thought about changing jobs, and then saw the job as the media manager of the Brumbies pop up. And I was literally on my phone on the Gold Coast. Um, I just got back from Hawaii and I was, I think the missus was having a sleep. And I was just sitting there in the sun and saw it. And I accidentally hit apply. And I didn't even know what my resume was, what it looked like that was connected to my seek profile on my phone. Because I just downloaded the app, I think, that day or whatever it was. And anyway, I, um, I'd accidentally hit apply without writing a cover letter. It was so like... Not on the money. <laughs> um, but my resume was pretty strong at the time. You know, I had I-98, win. Um, I had my showreels on there, which the, their whole staff watched and laughed at, um, which I didn't even know I had on there. Um, but, you know, and I had the 2GB background. I'd worked in comms, so, and I obviously had a pretty good contact database across the wind network, which was strong in Canberra. Southern Cross Stereo through my wife, friends I'd met along the way through 2GB, blah, blah, blah. So yeah, it was pretty tipsy, accidentally applied for a job and a day later the CEO called and said, it's pretty much yours if you want to come down and meet me, um, we can have a chat, run through it, you can see if, you know, what it's like, but you know, like the cut of your jib type chat. And I was like, I kind of had to remember what he was talking about and I was like, oh, all right. So anyway, the next week I drove down to Canberra, met with him and it was just one of those things where like anyone, you kind of walk in, you feel comfortable um, and I was like, I like this. And so I'd never left Wollongong. Uh, my wife always complained that I was going to stay there my whole life. Um, I didn't mind it too much. Um, all my mates are there. And, yeah, we made the decision to move to Canberra. And so I took up the job as media manager at the Brumbies. Now, what you probably didn't know at the time, and many of the listeners wouldn't know, that the Brumbies, pretty much around the time you've walked in there, got embroiled in a quite a nasty real estate scandal. And you're the front line for that. Ah, uh, Yes. That was the day. I thought these were behind me these days, Craig. Um, but yeah, no, it wasn't. So my first week, I walked in the door. My first game, I think my first day was like a Wednesday or Thursday. We had a Saturday game, which was Richie McCaw and Dan Carter's last ever Super Rugby game. So my first week on the job, we had a full house at um, Bruce Stadium, which doesn't happen anymore. Um, but walked in, walked in the door and had that and saw two of the greats of, of all time. And I was like, this is pretty good. Then we flew to Africa on the Monday for a semi-final. So I went to Cape Town. So I was like, this job is fantastic. Uh, a few months later, it changed a little. Obviously, there was some things going on at a board level, CEO level, which wasn't fantastic at the time. And, you know, there's a lot of stakeholders involved. It wasn't obviously an internal thing. It was... You know, people can call it the Canberra Mafia, whatever they want. It was, it was what it was. It was a situation that was, you know, some parties were trying to do one thing, others were trying to do another thing, and I think everyone had the right intentions, um, but it didn't end nicely. And we were actually in Africa um, at the time. And another, if you want a good story, what happened was the board and CEO parted ways um, on our one night off while we were in Africa on a three-week trip. And to say, again, I don't like sounding like an alcoholic, but I had a lovely night out with the team, with, you know, with, you know, the guys who all worked there. And we'd had a great night, um, very late. And I woke up to 75 missed calls. And I was like, oh, no, what's happened? And anyway, I called and most of them were from the chairman at the time. And so, I, um, yeah, I, I 
called back and I spoke to them and they said, can you put together a media release? We've decided to part ways with the CEO. And I could not see out of one of my eyes. I was, But I've never written a more concise, clear, direct media release in my life than sitting in... Oh, what was it? The... Um, Oh, I can't remember, but I was sitting in a hotel in Cape Town, one-eyed, looking at my computer screen and um, did what I had to do. Um, we got it signed off and then the word went out and then the phone calls really started. And boy, was that one fun day. But, you know, it was a, it was a sad situation for what it was because, as I said, I think everyone involved had the right intentions. It just, they couldn't agree on things. And so it ended pretty pretty badly for some and you know unfortunate because everyone involved I thought was a was a good person they just didn't agree and so yeah managing that was awkward because we had a CEO who as part of an injunction wasn't allowed to do certain things in the business and um, the board wasn't allowed to do certain things and it just wasn't operational and you know we'd sit there every day in the office kind of thinking what's going on and then the other part is you're trying to manage a very well-oiled machine of a football team who's getting asked constantly what you know what's going on how do you feel and it became monotonous as as off track or off field incidents always become the players are always the face of it the athletes are always the face to the media you know especially when the board and the ceo can't talk so managing that was you know it wasn't difficult because they were all mature and they were great they were great to deal with the brumbies you know great players i can't speak highly enough of stephen larkham and his everything that was there when i was there you know they all managed it really well but you get sick of it and you just want to concentrate on footy that's their job you know, they're not paid to talk about corporate corporate bullshit, essentially. So, um, yeah, I mean, that, that was one thing, is trying to keep them, you know, hey, mate, can you come and do media? You know, we need you to talk about the game this weekend to help us sell tickets or to promote it, blah, blah, blah. And then all they're getting asked about is what's going on at a board level. But they all managed it really well, and we got through it at the end. And as I said, it was, it was an unfortunate situation, and... Everyone came out the other side of it eventually and it's all worked out for everyone, but it was ugly. <laughs> had you had a crisis management situation like that in the healthcare job before? Yeah, I had I had one. And being a, a senior journalist, I guess, at Wynn, um, I'd been through some horrible, horrible incidents, um, some terrible stories that stick with you for your lifetime. Um, so crisis management and the ability to deal with a crisis and communicate it properly was something that, um, you know, you, you kind of pick up along the way and you need experience with. And then the aged care job, I was lucky that my boss at the time did come from a very high-level government position. And we had an incident that was ugly, but, um, you know, there was, you know, a few people got very ill. Um, we had a catering department, very long story, and it made national headlines, things like that. But, you know, that was my first having a look at how crisis... A, how things are managed, I guess, from a crisis point of view internally, um, which helped me out a lot, I guess. And then I went into the Brumbies and it was a completely different situation where it was more political. But at the same time, you take the same fundamentals. Like any job, you know, whatever you pick up along the way, you learn from that one incident and you build on that in the future. And, yeah, there wasn't too much I could do um, given it was all in courts. Um, and, again, it was all relationships that we had to manage. Um, and there was a lot of trust and... You know, like anything, a good journo is talking to anyone around the situation they're allowed to talk to, not the people involved. And then people come back to you saying, why is this story here? Why is that there? Why is this happening? And you have to be able to explain honestly, internally, why that's happening and how. And once people understand that, you can do your job a lot better. And yeah, again, as I said, walking into this job, 
you know what a crisis can be. Um, we've seen it all before in motorsport, and so I'm confident that you know we have a. a this supercars has one of the best crisis communications plans, I think, um, of any company I've ever been across, and that again comes down to people like Cole Hitchcock who understand the situation and keeping you cool in that situation again as a journalist you know what when there's something breaking or whatever there's that adrenaline rush and you want to be able to say do be you know all those things happening at once but from a media management point of view you have to be the exact opposite you have to be able to be clear concise honest not over the top um and you just need to make sure like any incident you see around the world where people say that that CEO handled that situation really well you know that that mayor got up and said that right it's because that that person and the people around them have managed that properly and I think crisis comms from a media management point of view is one of the hardest skills to learn but when you understand it and you can execute it properly it makes everyone around you who's involved and reporting on the situation understand what's going on clearer it stops speculation Um, and again if you're not honest with where you're at with that situation then those stories of, you know, in a world where Twitter and social media happens, things can go out of control very quickly. So, yeah, we're, you know, crisis comms is a huge part of what we do and it was a huge part of what happened to me at the Brumbies. Um, But it's a skill that, you know, when someone comes to you and says, I've done crisis comms, as a manager, that's a huge tick in the box. I was about to say, fortunately, nothing like that's ever happened at supercars. But... The potential, as you said, is there. So it's interesting to see you have got that plan to roll out in the unfortunate event, as Virgin like to say when you get on the plane, in the unlikely event of something going wrong. Yeah, and I mean, that's it's part of what you do with a job anyway. You know, a lot of any job, um, and journalists probably don't understand this, but any job in any business, um, other than being a journalist where you're just trying to get grab, 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 story, 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 is about strategy. Um, and part of your job is to sit down and for me personally I I look at other things you know the dream world situation um, you know very sad situations and then you kind of in this day and age where everyone commentates on commentary you you essentially look at how things are managed and how that's perceived and you learn from that and you know the people who rush out the communication we've all seen you know this company tweeted this as soon as the incident happened and that makes more news than the actual incident you know the the recovery the response um so as a media manager in any organization having that strategy and having that training and coming from maccas where you have a lot of training and you know it's a very simple job but again it's a step-by-step process the whole way that's exactly what you take into any job at a very high level and if you take crisis comms, for example, at a government level, it is a step-by-step-by-step-by-step by step by step, you know, execution of a plan. And it's exactly the same in putting a burger together. You, know, you put mustard on first, you put tomato on, you put the sauce on first, onion, pickle, cheese, meat. Disgusting, but you know, I still remember exactly the process. And that's what you've got to be as a media manager. You've got to know exactly what your job is in whatever situation. So, yeah, I guess you know, there's skills that you pick up over, over your time in work and as I said, if someone has that skill, you tick that box and say they know what they're doing. Indeed. So after the break, it's back with Paul Glover. Each week, join the Inside Motorsport team as they look at all the news from across Australia and around the world. 
Yeah, I mean, it, it means a lot. You know, through the years, a lot of reference this race is one of our majors. 600 miles around here is no easy task. Uh, we were able to beat the two level to the boys and, uh, and meet Anthony Bigley in the final, which uh, we were able to do after, um, take the win off him. So, it was, uh, yeah, it was a great weekend for the uh, Raptor family. Inside Motorsport broadcast on community radio and online at sportradio.com.au. Join in the conversation. Post your thoughts on our Sport Radio Facebook page. Hi, I'm Macaulay Jones I'm from the Cool Drive Racing Team, and you're listening to Inside Supercars. Supercars being a, a domestic series with interest overseas, obviously, uh, has got its own strange journalist that you're uh, wrangling, but you're also wrangling your internal stakeholders, which is your team at Supercars, and then you've got these other 24 cars, which works out to be, what, uh, 13, 14 teams, that are doing their own thing as well. How different to the Brumby's job is the Supercars job? Um, there's similarities in many, many ways. You know, so one of the reasons when I sat down with Cole, so the, I ended up on the Gold Coast from the Brumbies. I love my job at the Brumbies. My wife got a job at Channel 9 on the Gold Coast and, you know, I had a decision to make. Um, and your wife or a job in minus four degrees, it's, you know, especially on the Gold Coast, it wasn't the hardest decision. It was hard though. And I didn't, you know, necessarily want to leave when I did, but, you know, it was the right thing for us as a family. Um, and so... Yeah, I ended up on the Gold Coast and I sat down with Cole and we had a lot of the same contacts. We had a lot of the same ideas on, you know, how to do things. So having that bigger family, that wider family is something you always have. You know, the same journalists come to the same things. They all know the same stories. They all want to talk to the same people. Um, The difference would be that we as a unit, you know, the journalists, the teams, supercars are a travelling circus um, and we go everywhere together. So as I touched on earlier, that you have to be honest, you have to be, you know, you have to work with those people so much more, I guess, in supercars on a face-to-face basis. You can't hide behind emails and, you know, oh, sorry, I missed your call, mate, um, you know, which is a skill of a young media manager, trust me. Um, but, you know, all that type of thing, you can't hide behind because these people are in the room next to you. And if you cannot be honest with that person, you'll fail miserably in this job. And so I think we do a very good job between Cole and myself and Bella, our team, um, and our senior executives of making time for journalists and um, being honest on where we're at with certain things. And, and yeah, I guess, you know, because we're so close and, you know, we're spending three weeks apart, you, you spend half your time, you know, learning, you know, asking people how their family is, you know, how is their house move, um, going up and down the paddock. You know, it's the drivers as well. You know, as you said, we've got 24 drivers that we have to manage. We travel with them to launches. We spend nights in hotels with them. We get on the piss with them. They don't really drink. They're wusses. But um, I'm sounding like an alcoholic with all this drinking. But, you know, we, we do sit down and have a few drinks with them. Well, you were a journalist. That's true. We do sit down and, have, you know, have dinner with them. Like, it's a human thing, you know. You don't... I guess another key point as being a media manager is never think that someone isn't just a human with an extraordinary talent or job. You know, these people aren't extraordinary humans. Um, They're people who work their ass off to get to where they are, no matter who they are. If you're managing talent, there's a reason they are where they are. And you have to, again, respect that. But you can't go in, you know, wide-eyed and celebrity and you're thinking, oh, my goodness, there's, you know, such and such. There's Jamie Winkup, the seven-time champion. You treat him the same way you would anyone else you ever meet or anyone else you ever work with. You you give him respect. You, You don't walk in and... You know, because you're the media manager, say, hurry up, you've got to get to podium. You, you give him respect. You, 
you know, and same with Scott. Same, you treat, you know, the rookie the same way you would that. You don't know them when you walk in the door, so don't act like you're their best friend because you've read about them on Wikipedia. You know, if you want to be a good media manager, be a good person. You know, just be genuine. Um, and, yeah, I, that's something that, you know, across this board, given we're away 15 times a year together, um, if you're not that person, if you're not kind, if you're not honest, if you can't work together for four days at a time at a track and then when you're away from work as well, then you're going to fail. So what's good about this job is we do our work together, all of us, um, but then we do, as we're leaving at the end of the day, we're, you know, we're, we're sharing a laugh, we're, you know, we're talking about kids, we're talking about dogs, we're talking about whatever. Um, and it's not really all motorsport, motorsport, motorsport is the only thing we have in common. So in that regard, it's very similar it's very different, I guess, to rugby, where you are just part of one team. Whereas this one, the way that our business works with 15 events, you know, the travelling media that comes to everything, um, yeah, it's, it, it's enjoyable and uh, it's something that, you know, I love doing. And it's, it's working in three different aspects of the media management landscape. You're working as the overarching, uh, you know, face or, or conduit which means CEO, board, all those sort of people. You're working with the teams, which you were that team person at the Brumbies, not worrying about what the Sunwolves were doing, but now you have to worry about what the Sunwolves are doing. You have to worry about Brad Jones's uh, wild card at each event, as well as, as you mentioned, uh, what what's Ben Nightingale doing at DJR Team Penske, what's Caroline doing at, at Red Bull Racing. And that's obviously a mind shift. <laughs> but then you've got the wild card of we're also organising events and we're promoting events, which is the third string in the supercar's bow. So it's not one size fits all for each of those um, aspects of the job either. And I'd be interested to see how you have to jump from one to the other. It's a lot of project management. Um, and as you said, you, you do jump from one to the other. And again, you... It's time management is a huge thing. Like as a journalist, you pump out five, six stories a day, whatever it is online, you can pump out as many as you want in a day, but you're sitting there doing the same thing, different title, different grabs, whatever, each day. This job, as you just mentioned, is three very different types of work, which you do in the space of an hour sometimes, you know, and where we're saying, a perfect example is milestones. You know, if we've got Jamie Winkup's 400th race, um, you know, at the same time as someone's first ever race. Like this weekend, Will Davidson's got his 200th round and we've got Thomas Randall as a wild card in a Mustang. Um, and promoting those stories pre-event so people know what's going on is one thing that where you're working with essentially the same team in that regard, but they're two completely different stories. And Will, Bathurst winner, you know, he's got this background of, you know, you know, and people want to know, Will, are you, are you going to continue on for a long time? You, do you still have the drive? And those kind of stories pop up. But at the same time, you want... The same people knowing that Thomas Randall is on the grid. Um, and so in that regard, that's the same tier of what you're just talking about in the three tiers, but two completely different things where you need to know, and I guess this comes back to being a journalist, where that sits in a bulletin. Um, and our job is to maximise coverage. You know, that's what we do. And so you need to know how to do that. And as you said, our next level is making sure that ties into knowing the events on. So it's easy for me to say, when you talk to the motorsport crowd, it's easy for me to say, 
what's going on. Will Davidson's 200th, Thomas Randall's this, Nissan's got a new aero package. You guys come to every event, you understand that completely. One of the biggest things that I teach anyone who comes into sports journalism is you need to imagine the person that you're writing a media release for or you're picking up the phone to call or you're doing any work with outside of your core group, you have to think it is how I started out in radio. It is an 18-year-old at four in the morning with no manager who has absolutely no idea or interest in supercars who gets sent a media release and needs to be able to understand it, find it interesting, and say, you know what, I want to put that in the bulletin. And I remember getting those things all the time. And Damien White is a perfect example. I had no idea who Damien White was before I started working in journalism. I had no idea what V8 Utes was when I started working in journalism. I didn't follow motorsport my whole life. But these well-oiled video um, video news releases would come through with interviews of Damien explaining you know, the simples of journalism, you know, how I felt about that win or loss, um, how I feel about this weekend's race. Um, who my biggest competitor is this weekend, I'm close to a championship. You know, those very simple things. As an event promoter, you need to understand that you are talking to someone. Never assume that the journalist you're talking to in a media release is the people who sit in the room next to you at these events because they have no idea what an aero package is. I barely know now, and I've been in the sport three years. Um, They have no idea what centre of gravity is. They have no idea who Will Davison is. They may have heard of Craig Lowndes. He's the face of the sport, has been for 20 years. But they don't know who Scott McLaughlin is most of the time. They've heard him winning all the time now. So there's all these little things you need to understand. And that's my biggest tip, I think, to anyone coming through, is don't ever assume that your journalist audience um, understands your product. Always assume they have no idea what you're talking about. And once you do that, and I've done that since day dot, is... We've seen our media numbers rise across broadcast journalism, across, you know, the last three years we've had big numbers, I guess, in terms of our media coverage. And, like, that's obviously not just me, and I won't take full credit for it. Um, Cole has a hell of a lot to do with that. And our whole team, our whole, you know, from the very top, that's why that happens. But at the same regard, understanding that these people have no idea. And you've got to remember, we go to towns... You know, Winton, for example, is somewhere where I've dealt with different. I've dealt with nine different journalists in three years at the same organisation. Um, they don't know what they're coming to. They have no idea what a paddock is. I didn't know what a paddock was. You know, people are like, "Have you got a paddock pass?" I'm like, "What are you talking about?" But to everyone here, it's like, "You idiot." Um, so assume that they know nothing. Give them as much help as you can, and as that journalist rises through the ranks, they're gonna they're gonna remember that you helped them. Um, and you gave them the easiest option at putting that story together. And I learnt that as a journalist. I learnt, as I said, from VNRs like a Damien White one that was very simple, um, that explained what was going on. I didn't understand the tech terms they put in, and I never put it in a story. And that was probably the difference between Damien White getting a 12-second story and a minute 30 coverage. And if you've got sponsors, you know, they want that minute 30. And we're the same as a sport, as an event. You know, pre-event, we want that minute 30. We want guys who are watching sport families who are watching sport on TV or reading about it in a paper to get as big a coverage as they can. So where some people like to celebrate the, the intricacies of motorsport, what I've always tried to do and what I've always tried to impress upon people is give them the theatre that is sport, you know, the who, what, where, when, why, as simple as you can, and hopefully it works out. And I, it has worked for me in the past, and I'll keep doing it. The difficulty with things is... Each of those teams we talked about is an owner 
and it's very quickly apparent to you when a team owner thinks you're always going for X and Y when I'm launching this event or you're always, how come you're not coming down and seeing us? And it comes back to you've got to try and, you've got to try and hit that guy that's never been here before and, without being rude, James Golding is going to be a very hard sell to get your minute and a half you've cut us down to 12 seconds if I do that. And that's not being rude to James or Gary Rogers Motorsport. That's the reality of life. Yeah, and I mean, people, again, sport, as much as you want to celebrate what happens in, you know, the battle between 14th to 17th or 14th to 24th, all people care about in a newsroom is who won and what it looked like um, and grabs from that person. You know, the history is written by the winners is, you know, a very easy term to use. And it's very hard to impress upon those teams. And we do everything we can. You know, we have, in terms of media management and PR, we make sure that we have, for example, last week in Newcastle for our launch for 100 days out, I did have James Golding there with David Reynolds. You know, and getting those guys exposure as they're coming through. And Anton's a great example of that. No one knew who Anton was when he came through Super 2 on the outside. You know, in motorsport, everyone said... Anton's come from Europe, Anton's got this, Anton's got that. But until Anton joins up, until Anton at Bathurst had that amazing lap, absolutely no one knew who he was. So he starts with that sidebar story. And people who read the paper or people who watch it a bit, they recognise the name Anton Di Pasquale. Now, Anton has had two podiums this year. People are seeing his name a bit more often. Now, where I've got Reynolds paired with Golding, you know, to give Golding that, that, you know, help Gary out, get his sponsors out there. You know, the Addertons do a great job um, from Boost. They're kind of crazy, but they are amazing at getting their drivers out there and um, new ideas. But pairing James, who a normal audience outside of motorsport wouldn't know, with a guy like Dave, who's crazy and has a great profile, um, you can start pairing Anton with a younger driver now because Anton with what he's done on a track and the results he's got the podiums the great Bathurst result all of a sudden his profile's rising and we have to maximise that if we don't do that then when Anton gets a result people go who the hell are you talking about so it is that mix and you know Golding will have that himself as he goes through the ranks and gets more experience and gets better results Simona you know everyone knows Simona for being the first female supercars driver so on a wider audience they know what Simona looks like they know But they wouldn't know that yesterday was her best ever qualifying result. And so, again, we really have to know how to maximise what Simona did yesterday through social media, through what we do, sorry, with um, with what, you know, the communications we're putting out, so that if Simona continues to improve, as Anton has over the last two years, that when Simona wins a race, everyone celebrates it, everyone knows what's going on, and... Um, it's not just a, this complete random has won it. Um, and sometimes those stories are the best stories where a complete random wins a story. But in our sport, that's not what we want to do. We want to make sure the LeBrocks, the Goldings, you know, the guys who are new, rookies that are coming through, the Randalls, um, he's wild-carded today. You know, when he becomes a full-time driver, if he becomes a full-time driver, if he's named as a co-driver, all those kind of things, people have an idea who he is. And... You know, the AFL do it brilliantly. You know, they've got the VFL, they've got, you know, draft lists and you know these names. So the day that their jersey goes on sale, then fans know who they are and they want to buy it. And we try to do exactly the same thing. It is hard um, when you've got Wing Cups and McLaughlin's who are dominating. But Scotty started out, you know, where Golding started out. And now he is the big dog. And so when people see McLaughlin, when people see his car, 
they say McLaughlin won again. You know, that's a story that I can go because I know who he is. I know what he says. I know what he looks like in the VNR. I know the name. I recognise it. Um, and yet today, for example, you know, the story isn't that, um, you know, Scott's won his first race at the bend. The story is that today he could equal Craig Lowndes' all-time record. So identifying Scott with the face of the sport, you know, arguably behind Peter Brock, um, is something that we've seen this morning a lot of coverage with journalists who are sitting there saying, you know what, I want to see how Scott goes. And another point, I guess, is that a lot of people see their audience as the wider audience. As a media manager whose job it is to talk to journalists, the journalists are your audience and they do the work for you. And if you can make the journalists interested, they'll make the fans interested. And that comes back to that respect thing. You have to understand that what they're doing is great for your sport and they're good at what they do. So don't underestimate them and don't ever assume that sending them a vague, you know, three-liner, Scott McLaughlin one at the bend, here's one, two, three, is going to help you. you. You do the hard yards, you have the good relationships, and you connect the dots, I guess, um, with, you know, the stars to the new guys and whatever, and it seems to be working. <laughs> Perito says 80, you know, uh, 20% of your journalists are 80% of your coverage. And that's a fact. Fairfax, News Limited, 7, 9, 10, ABC, SBS uh, are probably less than 20% of the journalists signed up for supercars. So how then, when you've got to make sure you get maximised at 80% of what is the broadcast audience or the broadsheet or the, the new newspaper audience, how do you then have to balance the, the other 80%, myself and those sorts of things, and then when you look at it, 80% of what anyone is interested in is the main game, the Virgin Championship. But you now, since you've been here, have got Super 2 and Super 3 all needing that ladder to be able to help them move forward. And again, that comes down to understanding where someone starts. Um, and, you know, the as I've always said, and as I've said uh, probably about 30 times, I'm sorry, but as I've said here, you always respect that your journalist, you know, understands the situation and um, you can help them with, you know, what's going on. So I don't treat, you know, the, the guy who's working for, you know, Auto Action or V8X this weekend, who's, anyone who's sitting in the media centre this weekend, I'm giving them as much information as I'm giving News Limited and, you know, those guys out there because it's all the same, as you said, it, 100% of your audience. You know, you don't play to 20% of your audience just because that's where your numbers are. Because... Sometimes you have to, you know, just make sure that everyone gets the same information across the board um, for you to get the coverage you need. You know, and we, we, like, get a lot of good numbers out of all the motorsport websites, which means a lot to us as well. You know, it's not just the big broadcast. Um, so the 80-20 kind of split is, you know, we make sure that everyone is getting the same information, the same photos, the same videos, you know, everything like that that they're allowed to have because that extends our our reach. And, you know, the motorsport, if you look at the people who follow Speed Cafes, Auto Actions, all the podcasts, there's about 150 of them now with the drivers getting involved. Um, but that whole audience, if they're all seeing James Golding signs a new contract with Boost or James Golding's moving to Walkinshaw, if they see that in the motorsport website and then that pops up on mainstream as well, that gives the whole sport a boost. You know, you can't keep talking to the same people week in, week out. You, you need to understand that you've got an audience on your right and an audience on your left. Um, 
And, you know, like anyone who's on stage, you have to work the whole room. Um, and that's what we try to do all the time. There's a lot more we could talk about, but we, uh, you've probably got a job to do. So uh, thanks very much, Paul Glover, for your time, and we will catch up with you in the future, I'm sure. No worries. Thanks a lot, mate. And it's funny you say I've got a job to do because anyone else in the media centre would say, what do you actually do? <laughs> it's certainly a, a different world. Is it changing much, uh, Craig? Did you get from Paul with the uh, departure of Cole Hitchcock coming up? Yeah, I don't think it is going to change a lot in Paul's world, but... Well, we'll have to wait and see. It certainly is a different media landscape than what Cole was faced with when he joined the team, however many years ago that was now. But uh, we'll we'll see how it all plays out. And, uh, yeah, very good of Paul to give us so much time on a race weekend. And uh, we appreciate that from him. It should be interesting to see how uh, much coverage supercars can get now that they're coming towards that uh, fascinating endurance part of the season. Each week join the Inside Motorsport team as they look at all the news from across Australia and around the world. This year in Formula 3 I think it's a fantastic environment for me to be doing that. However, I believe for myself uh, a sustainable career in tin tops such as Fiat Supercars in Australia is where I see myself. Second crack at the Australian time since we've been back and a bit unlucky the first time that we end up with a win there at Speedway City uh, two weeks ago. Inside Motorsport broadcast on community radio and online at sportradio.com.au. Join in the conversation, post your thoughts on our Facebook page and to ask a question, email insiders at sportradio.com.au. Welcome to Inside Supercars. This is Ryan Story from DJR Team Penske. Enjoy the show. Welcome back to Inside Supercars. Craig, my final thought for this week revolves around what I think will be a very exciting season in 2020. Not that this one hasn't been. Of course, we've seen uh, a greater dominance than we've seen in you know back since the introduction of Craig Lowndes to the series back in '96. It's been a, a wonderful time to see a young man really stepping forward and you know covering himself not only in glory in the car but also the way in which he acts and treats the media and the fans out of the car. I, I think it's been a wonderful time, and certainly uh, he has risen to the uh, challenge. And faced it well after, of course, his disaster of 2017 when he lost uh, the title uh, on the last uh, or the second, second last day of the year. But it's been a fantastic series this year, I think. Everyone focused on the Enduro Cup because no one's catching Scott McLaughlin in the championship. That is uh, an almost unassailable lead that he holds already heading to Pukekohe, where he's uh, looking to turn it into 17 race wins in a season, the new benchmark for dominance. And with plenty more chances to add even further to that uh, title. Gosh. All right, well, um, Craig, your final thought for this week? My final thought is that uh, once again we are reminded on how dangerous motorsport is with um, an incident in Formula 2 at Spa-Francorchamps circuit in Belgium. It's, you know, you see motor racing is dangerous on the, uh, the ticket or the, the uh, for us, the indemnity forms we sign at the uh, media centre and events like what we saw over the weekend really do bring it home that the pilots are out there risking their lives still, even in this era of very, very safe construction of motor racing vehicles. 
Yes, indeed. Very sad indeed. The last uh, driver who died at uh, this sort of level, I think, would have been um, John Surtey's son, Henry. Um, and uh, a very high price to pay to lose, uh, lose your child. And uh, I'm sure the parents of uh, the young man who died in France, uh, in Belgium rather, would be uh, very sad for, for a lot of the industry and motorsport in Europe. Well, that's it from uh, Inside Supercars this week, and we get ready as uh, New Zealand looms up only a couple of weeks away. So that's all from me. And good night from him. Inside Supercars is produced by Thunder Media. Tune in next week for more at sportradio.com.au or lock in the podcast on your iTunes or mobile device. Search Inside Supercars.